Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3. The book of Titus, chapter 3, towards the close of the New Testament. We've been moving through the book of Titus now for a few weeks and uh, uh, moving it, starting chapter 1, verse 1, moving all the way through uh, these three chapters. Um, the expectation is we got two more Sundays after this Sunday, and then we will be finished with the book of Titus. But I love moving through books of Scripture because you really begin to get a real feel for what God was wanting to communicate, especially through those New Testament letters. And so the book of Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So go ahead and hold your spot there, and um, let me take a moment and just pray. You know, this is one of those messages, ever so often I just have a sense, I have a feel that uh, it may be one of the most important messages I've preached in some time. And I really feel in my heart this is one of those messages. And so let me take a moment to pray and uh, ask God to bless this time. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given us. Lord, thank you that we can open it today we can move through it and lord that it's your holy spirit who can take it and bring it to life in us we pray that's exactly what you will do lord that for those who have a relationship with you that uh looking through this passage will take them deeper will cause us to be more appreciative and to have a greater perspective on not only what you've done for us but also the call that you placed in our life to go with the gospel but lord we also pray today for those who don't have a relationship with jesus that today lord through your spirit that you would bring conviction that they bring an acknowledgement of the fact that they are separated from you. And God, that you would at the same time bring just a beautiful understanding and clarity to the message of the gospel and a willingness and a courage to surrender everything to follow Jesus today. And so we thank you for what you'll do. Use this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you are folks who love to watch television shows of the murder mystery type. Maybe through the years, you've always kind of followed those kind of stories, you know, in recent years or so, you've got a lot of the, you know, the real life court type cases that you can now follow on television. And if you've ever watched any of those types of shows, then you're familiar with a thing called the autopsy. You can't watch a murder mystery on television almost without being exposed to someone somewhere at, during that 60-minute show performing an autopsy. And we're all familiar with that. We're familiar with the fact of how a medical examiner comes and he begins to examine that body after death has taken place for a number of reasons. One reason they do that is to ultimately, sometimes, to give peace of mind to the family. Having the known cause of death helps that family to, to have peace of mind, to have questions maybe that had previously been unanswered to be answered. Another reason is to, at times, to expose some, maybe some genetic issues that were there that family members can benefit from knowing, and an autopsy helps to reveal that. But more often than not, an autopsy is performed, we know, to reveal the exact cause of death. As a result of examining the body and examining the organs, uh, the examiner is able to pinpoint exactly what it was that was either present or that was lacking that resulted in that person's death. Well, this morning, what I want us to do is to put on our thinking caps a little bit and to just imagine for a moment as we all move through an autopsy together, this not being a physical autopsy, because I know what you're thinking, all right, we got lunch in about 45 minutes, so uh, it's not a physical autopsy, this is going to be a spiritual autopsy. Whereas a medical examiner would use certain tools of his trade, right, scalpels and the like, we're not going to be using those tools, I'd be flat out dangerous if those things were placed in my hands, and so we're going to use a different tool, we're going to use the tool of God's Word, Scripture. As we perform this spiritual autopsy using the tools of God's Word, it's going to be very specific in nature. In fact, the case study that we'll look at this morning is going to be the person who has chosen to reject Jesus and ultimately has stepped down into eternity. Their life has come to an end, and they now stand before God without a relationship with Him. 
As we move through Titus chapter 3, what you're going to find, as I have found, is that this is one of the most comprehensive passages of Scripture I think you'll find in the Bible that helps us to understand the condition of those who have a relationship with God and then by default those who don't have a relationship with God. And I couldn't help but recognize as I move through these eight verses that we're going to look at here in just a moment, I couldn't help but realize that it was somewhat like an autopsy, looking spiritually into the life of one who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord and being able to see what is present and also what is lacking as a result of that, which hopefully today for all of us will give us a clear picture of the magnitude of the urgency of ensuring that we have a relationship with God, that we are right with him, and that we are also understanding as believers the call that God has put in our lives to go with the simple message of the gospel. Well, as we move through this particular passage of Scripture, what you're going to find is an explanation of the, uh, of the difference that is made when a person has a relationship with Jesus. It's that difference that comes into play, not just during our time on this earth and the decades perhaps that God gives us, but also it's the presence of a relationship with Christ that has an impact ultimately on our eternity. The Gospel Coalition has put out some statistics that say just in the course of this particular message that I'll proclaim this morning, just in the manner of these 30 minutes or so that we have, over 3,000 people will step out into eternity. Now, we have no idea of those 3,000 people that will step out into eternity, how many of them have a relationship with God. It's not always easy to see a person's condition, uh, or rather their, uh, their standing before God, just by simply looking at their life. However, we can assume that there will be far less that will step into eternity prepared than there will be those who step into eternity not ready to meet God. Jesus would tell a particular uh, parable, a uh, particular story in the New Testament, a parable of the sowers, uh, and, and how the sower would go and sow seed. And as he sowed that seed, he would give kind of an illustration of the different types of soil or the different conditions of the human heart upon which that seed would fall. And of those four types of soil, the four types of, of, of heart attitudes, it would only be one which would bear any type of measurable fruit. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a percentage. That doesn't mean that one out of four, 25% of the people in existence are going to heaven. It doesn't mean that at all. Nowhere does the Bible tell us that there is a number. Nowhere does it tell us that there's a percentage of people in existence who ultimately will spend forever with God. However, we can understand simply by that parable and also Matthew 7, verse 14, when Jesus would describe eternity as saying, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to repentance and faith in Christ. We can understand putting all that together that there are far more in eternity separated from God than there are with God today. And so whenever we turn to this particular passage in the book of Titus, what we find is, is that there is an urgency that is here. There is a necessity for us to do business with ourselves before God on this side of eternity to ensure that we're in a relationship with him, to ensure that we are where he wants us to be in our lives because the day will come when we stand before him. This is not a scare tactic. This is not a guilt tactic. This is simple reality that the day will come when all of us will stand before God. Of that 3,000 plus that will pass away during the course of this message, there will be a day when we will be numbered amongst that number and when we will stand before God, either prepared or unprepared, either ready or not ready. Now, whenever we begin to to look at the realities of of death and the end of this life that we'll all face. Death plays no favorites. There will be those that will stand before God that are not prepared, that will be of the richest and of the poorest. There will be those that will stand before God unprepared, unready for eternity, separated from God during this life, who didn't choose to place their faith in Jesus, who are of the greatest success, and those that will be turned by the world the greatest failures. There will be doctors, there will be white-collar, there will be blue-collar, there will be teachers 
There will be those of every occupation, every vocation that the human mind can imagine. There will be every segment of life represented by those who choose not to have a relationship with God, including those who would term themselves religious in nature. And so we find here in the book of Titus that there are going to be some common traits as we perform this spiritual autopsy with the instrument of God's word. We're going to find that there are some common traits that are found. Whether that person who is an unbeliever steps out into eternity, was rich or poor, whether they're educated or uneducated, there are going to be some common traits that are going to be recognizable there that are going to just jump off the page here as we move through these eight verses in Titus chapter 3. And so to give you a little bit of a context for those maybe who haven't been here for this entire uh, series. The context of Titus is very, very simple. It's a letter that was written by Paul, the greatest missionary who ever walked this earth, to a man named Titus. It's Titus's name that bears this, uh, the title of this particular book. Paul wrote this letter to Titus for a reason. Titus was on an island called Crete, 135 miles long, 7 miles, somewhere 30 miles in places wide, just a pretty sizable uh, uh, island there, scattered around the island of Crete in the first century were pockets of believers, individual churches. Now in those churches, there was a lot of immaturity. They, they didn't have a deep walk with the Lord. There was no leadership. There were issues with false doctrine, false teaching that was taking place. And so what Paul did was, upon his visit there, we don't know how long that was, he would ultimately leave Crete and he would place Titus in a position of leadership there. And so Titus would have his very clear marching orders to put into place pastors over those local churches to help raise the bar in the life of the believers that they would begin to live up to their calling, right? That they wouldn't just claim to have a relationship with God, but they would also uh, demonstrate that and exhibit that through their lives. And then he would also have to deal with false teachers. And so in the midst of these 46 verses, these three chapters in the book of Titus, what we find here at the beginning of chapter 3 is that Paul then begins to, 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 to walk down the hallway of such a clear, clear explanation of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. And so obviously the counter to that is what, would it, what it would look like to not be in a relationship with God. And so starting here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and 2, we're going to read these two, first two verses, which really kind of close out in a sense chapter 2. And then in beginning in verse 3, we're going to begin our spiritual autopsy of one who has stepped into eternity without a relationship with God, understanding what it was that caused that separation and understanding what was both present and also what was both lacking as well in the life of that unbeliever. So let's begin. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and verse 2. Paul writes to Titus and he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Paul has just finished in chapter 2 talking about the beauty of the grace of God. And in a sense, it's these two verses, even though uh, you know, we have a different chapter heading, chapter 3, it's these two verses that kind of close out that previous segment. What Paul is saying here to Titus is that you need to remind Titus, you need to remind the believers that there should be evidence of their relationship with God present in the lives that they live on a daily basis. They should have these qualities that are in existence. They should have a, a sense of, of uh, operating under authority, whether that be to rulers or other authorities. They should be obedient. They should be ready ultimately to do good deeds. Those good deeds don't save us. They're, they're available for us to do because we have a relationship with God. Paul goes on to say that, that, that those who have a relationship with God should not malign anyone. They should be peaceable and gentle and ultimately just show consideration for all men. Now, here's the thing. This just wipes half the people off of Facebook right off the bat, right? Because Facebook is just a great place to go vent and that kind of stuff. So Paul is saying, no Facebook. 
Now, I think that's what this means in, in, uh, in Greek. I'm, I'm just kidding. So, uh, so he's just saying there, there's a different standard in a sense. There, there's, a, there's a bar, right, that we should attain to and that we should want to attain to as representatives of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that we don't live our life the way we used to. There is a new Lord in place, and it's not ourselves. There is a Savior that we follow, and that should be demonstrated even though we have our bumps and even though we stumble and even though we have a long way to go to be like Christ, starting with a guy who speaks up here every Sunday, there should be general evidence, right, in the way we treat others, in the way we carry ourselves, in the way we live, there should be evidence that our lives are different than they used to be. I mean, that's the biggest slam, right, on the church, on the body of Christ, on Christians. That's the biggest slam in our culture, especially here in this country, is that our, our actions don't match our words. We're very quick to speak loudly with a megaphone, but then when it comes to our life being put under a microscope, we're not prepared. We don't want any part of that because we want to live life on our terms, not on God's terms. So Paul is dealing with this. He's saying to Titus, you remind everybody that, that there is a... There is a standard, right, that goes along with a relationship with God. Not a standard that you have to meet to be saved, but there is a change that should be evident in you as you walk in subjection, in submission, in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 3 then, let's begin our spiritual autopsy here. Understanding those things, let's begin our spiritual autopsy beginning in verse 3. Looking at the life of the one who is an unbeliever, one who has not been made right in relationship with God. Paul says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul here is doing something really interesting. He is going back in time, okay? He is looking in the rearview mirror. I know we shouldn't spend a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror. Understand that. The old saying, there's a reason the windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror because we don't need to be spending our time in the past. But Paul is doing that right here. He's saying, let's just go back to a second. Let's just, let's just step into the way back machine and let's just go back to what life was like before we had a relationship with God. And he said, in very convincing fashion, he, he began to look at the presence of some specific uh, uh, condi- or some specific characteristics, the presence of these characteristics in the life of those who don't have a relationship with God. He says, first of all, we were foolish back then. Without a relationship with God, we were very, very foolish. This has nothing to do with intellect, right? Has nothing to do with head knowledge. This has everything to do with the application or the lack of application of what we know is true. That's what foolishness is. Some of the people who were the most unlearned in our culture, some of the people who were, were, were the least uh, 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 reached academically are some of the wisest people that you will ever meet. Paul here is not speaking about intellect or knowledge. He's speaking about a willingness, a desire to just reject and push to the curb what we already know is true. See, God has placed eternity in our hearts. We all are wired to worship something. Ultimately, the only one worthy of our worship is God. And so for the person who chooses not to have a relationship with God, that is, that's exactly what's saying, especially in this country, it is a choice. Now, there are nations around this globe, especially in the 1040 window and World Day, where the gospel has not made its access there yet. Those are unreached people groups. Even there, we could argue that, that amongst those people, that they haven't been presented the truth of God's word. That is why there is an urgency with us as believers getting the message of the gospel to those unreached people groups. However, there is an acknowledgement in the life of every single one of us that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and we choose to worship something. What is being said here, Paul says, before you had a relationship with God, you were absolutely foolish. You were pushing away the things that you knew to be true. You were distancing yourself from any accountability before God. 
He says you were foolish. He says, second, you were disobedient. In other words, the decisions that you made, the lifestyle that you would choose, the, the, the course that you would travel in your life would give evidence to the fact that you were disobeying against not only God but against his truth as well. There is a, a mark of disobedience present in the life of the unbeliever. We, when we perform this autopsy, what we see there in the life of the unbeliever, the spiritual autopsy, is that there is the presence of, of disobedience over the course of their life. He says there is deceit. You've been deceived for the one who chooses not to have a relationship with Christ. There is deception that has run rampant through that person's life. Chasing after all the wrong things. Thinking that there's going to be life found in, in, in something or some possession or some person outside of a relationship with Jesus. Just a deception that has been carried out by the master deceiver himself, Satan, the enemy himself. As you look there in that verse, verse 3, you find Paul mentions an enslavement there, almost a powerlessness to sin. Spiritual autopsy of an unbeliever reveals over the course of their life that there would be a, a powerlessness to overcome the things that they oftentimes would know were to their detriment. An inability to put away the things that needed to be put away. And we're not talking just about addictions here. Just a, a, a general course of life even. Just pursuing, again, all the wrong things. An enslavement, an inability to step out of the cycles of sin. Out of the cycles of self-destruction and, and, and into new life. An inability to do that. A powerlessness. Paul would call it an enslavement there. Paul would say that a spiritual autopsy in a sense of an unbeliever would reveal malice and hate and envy and just spending time, uh, vast amounts of time, chasing down those avenues of malice and hate and envy, just cycles of life. Now, it doesn't mean then that for an unbeliever that there were never births of kindness or generosity or good deeds. It doesn't mean that at all. What this means is, as a, as a default mode, a spiritual autopsy of an unbeliever, according to the scalpel of God's word, is that these conditions are always going to be present. That if we look in the rearview mirror and we we'll look back over the course of that person's life, it's going to reveal these characteristics that are laid out so clearly in chapter 3, verse 3. Moving into chapter 4, verse 7, Paul continues... He says in verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. In verse 4, Paul is making mention of the beauty of the coming of Christ. When he refers in verse 4 to the kindness of our God and our Savior, and when he refers to his love for mankind and having it appeared, he's referencing the coming of Jesus. It's that first Christmas. You know, people who study uh, uh, you know, Scripture all the time, we call them theologians, right? They use the big term incarnation. That's what they're referring to here. That it was when Jesus came in the incarnation, that first Christmas, that that was the manifest, that was the uh, flesh and blood appearing uh, of God. God's mercy and of God's grace and of God's salvation. It was when Jesus came in that first Christmas, Luke chapter 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, captured for us so well, all of Scripture testifies to the coming of Christ. What Paul says here is that for a person who, who steps into eternity without a relationship with God, whenever that happens, that is not God's fault. 
<laughs> you know, it, it is a decision for the majority of people, at least in this country, who choose to reject Jesus as Savior and as Lord. In fact, I would even say in this room, there are some very, very religious people who have come to church many, many times through the course of your life. You may never miss a Sunday. And yet here in this room, I would say, based on the sheer numbers, that it would be safe to, to assume that there are people here that are very religious in nature, but you've never made the decision to come to God on his terms. That you would be termed by God as an unbeliever because you've never placed faith in Jesus. You've never chosen to follow him on his terms in repentance and in faith. And so what is, what is being said here in verse 4 is that God has a heart that desires to reach those who are separated from him. Second Peter chapter 3 says that he is not, not desiring that anyone would perish, but he desires that all would come to him in repentance. Scripture is very clear to us that God's heart, John three sixteen, is a heart of love towards us, that he desires us to come to him, that he desires us to know him, to have a relationship with him. So when we move into verse 5 here, what it tells us is that it's God alone who saves us. If we could continue in the spiritual autopsy of this unbeliever, and if we could somehow spiritually, with the scalpel of God's word, look into their life, we would find not just some things present from verse 3, but we would also find some things that are absent. And like the absence of oxygen would ultimately lead to death, the absence of these qualities that Paul's going to begin to deal with also is evidence of spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. Paul would say there in verse 5 that in the same way that God saves us in the life of the unbeliever, there is no salvation to be found. You can look far and wide through the course of their mind and their heart and their will, and you find no salvation. In fact, if you look back to verse 3 again, all the qualities that we just talked about, foolishness and deceit, being enslaved, all those qualities, that's what God saves us from. And yet a spiritual autopsy reveals that for the unbeliever, they haven't been saved from any of those qualities. They haven't been saved from the, from the one major issue of life, that being their own sin. Salvation is totally absent. There is no sense, there is no hint, there is no fragment of salvation to be found whatsoever in their lives. It is an unpaid debt, an unpaid debt that has gone unpaid by that person because they're unable to pay for it before God and because they've not elected to, uh, to surrender their lives to God's remedy for that debt, the person of Jesus. Let me be quick to say as well that no good deeds, this is one of the greatest deceptions in all the, in all the earth. No good deeds can pay for that debt, by the way. No good deeds can lead to salvation. Titus will deal with good deeds six or seven times through the course of this book, and we're going to address that here later in the next couple of weeks. But nowhere in the book of Titus do we find that good deeds, nowhere in Scripture do we find that good deeds are ever the remedy for our sin problem. If we continue with this autopsy, we find that Paul makes mention as well in verse, uh, verse 5 of mercy. For the believer, we have ultimately been touched by God's mercy. However, for the unbeliever, a spiritual autopsy reveals the total absence of mercy. God is a God who will have applied justice to that sin. And there will be no mercy available after death in the life of the unbeliever. Now, through the course of their life, they will have been touched by mercy numerous times. Every single one of us have, regardless of where we stand before God. God, every act or every, every new breath is an act of mercy on God's part. He had every right and he had every bit of power to do away with me the moment that I committed my first sin. And yet, by God's mercy, he chose to continue to allow me to live on this earth. He chose to ultimately get the gospel to me. And he chose ultimately to save me and hopefully to use my life in a way that can impact eternity. God shows mercy throughout the course of our lives. But when we do this spiritual autopsy on the life of the unbeliever, at that point of death, God's mercy is off the table. 
And there is only a dealing with pure and perfect justice with the sin that has gone unpaid. Paul makes mention of the watching, uh, uh, mention of the washing of regeneration and renewing. That regeneration, and in a sense the renewing as well, both refer to the giving of new life. You know, it's not just out of the 70s Jesus movement that we heard the phrase being born again that comes right out of the pages of Scripture. When we talk about regeneration, when we talk about being renewed, that's what it's talking about. It's the, the replacing of the old life with a new life. You see, the life of the believer is not a cleaned up, patched up, second-rate life. What happens in the believer, whether you're eight years old or 98 years old, when you give your life to Christ, God doesn't just say, okay, well, let me just take the mess you've made, right? And and let's just patch it all together. And I'm going to apply some grace and some mercy and just whatever else God does. I'm going to just plow this up. You're going to have a really good, the best we can do right here, you're going to have a really good patched up, second-rate life. God doesn't say that. What happens in the life of the believer, (laughs) this is really good news, is that when we give our lives to Jesus, He says, you know what? The old life is gone. We're just going to pack that up because it's forgiven, dealt with. Let's just move it out, learn from it, and I'll help you do that along the way. I'll even redeem it and use it for my glory if you'll let me. But let's just move the old life out of the way because we got a brand new life for you. And we're going to begin to unpack that life and what it means to be in a relationship with me. That's what God says. That is regeneration. That is a renewed life that God gives us. It's Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3, that helps us to get a little bit of a sense of this. Look at what it says. Jesus answered and he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, by the way, being a very religious person who was not in a relationship with God, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, there is no mention of doing good works. Well, what if I just surrender my life to help the poor? (laughs) That has nothing to do with being born again. Well, what if I just do a lot of good deeds, God, and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds as though someone's actually counting all that? What if it all somehow pans out in the end, right, to where, you know, I'm just a generally good person and you're going to let me in, right? This doesn't have anything to do with good deeds. He says, no, you have to be born again. God is confined, in a sense here, to communicating according to language. Uh, This gets kind of deep, right? So uh, just try to follow me on this. I didn't have this in my notes. I hope I don't lose most of you, or myself for that matter. So God is, in a sense, confined. I know he's powerless, or or powerful, all-powerful, but God, in a sense, has to communicate in the confines of language. And it's so dramatic is the change that comes in a person's life when they yield their lives to Jesus. So dramatic is that. The the only way it can be adequately explained in the confines of human language is to say, you know what, it's like you've just been born all over again. So drastic is the change that comes when you bow your heart and you bow your mind and you bow your will to the Lord Jesus Christ. So drastic and dramatic is that change. It's like being birthed all over again. You become a brand new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You must be born again, the Bible says. But when we do this this spiritual autopsy of the unbeliever and when we use the scalpel of God's word, what happens is as we begin to examine That unbeliever's life, we find the total absence of regeneration. There is no new life that was ever there to replace the old life. The old life of sin, the old life of condemnation is all still present. There was no renewal. There's no presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back again to, to, to Titus at the very end of that phrase. He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, this autopsy reveals the absence of the Holy Spirit. The total absence of the Holy Spirit. This is problematic (laughs) because of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were what? You were sealed in him 
with the Holy Spirit of promise. Scripture says it's that Holy Spirit, God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who seals us for eternity, till the day of redemption, for all of eternity. Who keeps us. Not our good works keeping us in God's graces. It's God, the Holy Spirit, keeping us in relationship with God. He seals us. And yet we take a closer look in the spiritual autopsy of the unbeliever. No presence of the Holy Spirit to be found. No presence whatsoever of the sealing effect of the Holy Spirit. Going back to Titus, he makes mention of justification. Let's look at the next slide. So that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification is twofold. It has two components, two sides of this one coin called justification. On one side of the coin, there's forgiveness of sins. But on the other side of the coin, there's the truth that God has credited Jesus' righteousness to our account. That's why me, Brooks, with a long list of sins throughout my life, can have the assurance that when my eyes close in death, and I hope I'm 148 when that happens, and I stand before God, it's why God, who is perfect, can say to me, who is not, welcome home. It's because not just that I have been forgiven, but because Jesus' very righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, his very righteousness has been credited to my account. And it didn't happen because I got good enough. It didn't happen because I'm a pastor and work in a church. It didn't happen because of any other reason except that I gave my life to Christ in repentance and faith. And he took his righteousness and covered my life with it. And it's the same for every believer. But in the life of the unbeliever, a spiritual autopsy shows no justification, no forgiveness, no presence of the righteousness of Jesus. Only the presence of their own righteousness, which is Badly insufficient. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, there's that word again, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If justification leads to peace with God and there is no justification to be found in the unbeliever, then we would also have to determine then that there is no peace there either. There is only broken relationship with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 even paints it more clearly. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A beautiful, beautiful promise for those who have a relationship with Christ. That God does not condemn us. Jesus took that for us on the cross. But the spiritual autopsy of the unbeliever shows that they still stand for all of eternity under the condemnation of God. Very, very sobering, sobering reality. So for the unbeliever, this spiritual autopsy shows the worst condition of all. Separation from God with no way to make amends after the point of death. What then would be the outcome? Well, because God is desiring for us to know the truth so that we can respond, and because God is loving and because God is fair, he has helped us to see what the outcome would be in no uncertain terms. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the words of a disciple, former disciple of Jesus, a man named John, that God would move upon John's life to pin the words to Revelation chapter 20 specifically we're looking at here. And it's this picture that pulls back the curtain on forever for those who die without a relationship with Christ. 
John writes and he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Again, it doesn't mean their deeds make them right with God. Their deeds bear evidence. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, this culture would say, well, there you go, that hellfire brimstone stuff. Point well taken. The problem with that is that it's true. And this has to be dealt with. Better to deal with that reality on this side of forever than on the other side, where nothing can be changed. Jesus paints a very clear picture. And though he wouldn't use these terms or this imagery, a spiritual autopsy of the unbeliever would reveal a heart and would reveal a mind far from God. But I made the comment at the very beginning that it would also reveal a will separated from God. Jesus would tell a story in Luke chapter 16. Some would say it was a historical event he was describing. Others would say it was a parable. really doesn't matter. Whatever Jesus would say in Luke 16 was all true. And it's a story of two particular people. One man, a man by the name of Lazarus, who was a very poor man, different from the Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus was very, very poor. He would long to be fed with just the crumbs, right, that could be thrown his way. Even the dogs would come and lick the sores on his body, Jesus would say. And then there would be a second man, a man that has no name that's given to him in Scripture, just the rich man. In Jesus' story, the rich man and Lazarus Lazarus both die, and they step out into eternity. For Lazarus, he was right with God. In the story that Jesus is telling, undoubtedly, he would have had a relationship with God. And so as a result of that relationship with God, at the point of Lazarus's death, he steps into the presence of God. Different terminology is used, calls it Abraham's bosom, but we would understand it as being heaven in the presence of God for Lazarus. The, the rich man would also die and step into eternity, and yet his destination would be vastly different in Luke 16. It would be a place where he would be suffering the penalty and the payment for his sins because the payment of Christ had not been applied to his life. He would be in such great torment that he would be able to look across. He couldn't change his destination, but there was a great gulf and a great chasm that separated him. And the picture that Jesus would paint was that he could look into the beauties of heaven and he would see there Lazarus. And he would ask Abraham, he would say, Father Abraham, could you just send Lazarus just to dip his finger in just the tip of his finger in water to just bring some moment of relief for I'm in agony in these flames. It was a very very specific, a very uh, heart-rending picture of eternity without Christ. It's there in the conversation that we pick up, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 28. The rich man is asking for a warning for his five brothers. He says, I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. He's saying, please send the message to them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's a reference to the Old Testament. 
They have the scripture. They have the truth of God. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, this is an amazing statement, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't, if they're not moved by the truth of God's word in the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a story that in your Bible would be in all red. Jesus is telling this story. And it's a very interesting thing that he's communicating. What he's saying is this. It is not evidence that is the issue, right? It is not evidence. There's not more knowledge they need. They don't need to see proof necessarily. Yes, they need to know the gospel. But the issue is not evidence. He says, your brothers are not going to be made right with God because they get the right evidence, you know, because they, you know, find some shroud in an archaeological dig or because there's some monument that gets found. Evidence is not the issue. What he's saying here is that your brothers are not going to be made right even if they see the resurrection, If someone's raised from the dead, they're not even going to be changed. Why? Because the issue is not evidence. The issue is the condition of the human heart. The issue is their will. They do not want a Lord over their life. And so the spiritual autopsy of the unbeliever reveals a mind, it reveals a heart, and it reveals a will. So far from God with evidence at every stage along the way in the characteristics of their life and also in the lacking of things that must be present to have a relationship with Jesus. It's why back in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, it's why the admonition would be given to Titus. This is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you, Titus, to speak confidently so that those who have believed God We'll be careful to engage in good deeds. Why? Because it's our way of testifying to the change that only God can bring. These things are good and profitable for men. So what if there was a spiritual autopsy performed on your heart today? What would it reveal about your views on Jesus? Would it reveal that he is merely a ticket? to a better life for you, greater health, more wealth, kind of the almighty bailout, right, when things don't go well. Oh, Jesus, please just get me out of this one more time. Would it reveal that he has been rejected and pushed to the curb for you? Or would it reveal that at some point in time you've made the decision that has to be made to yield your heart, mind, soul, and will everything of who you are, to his lordship, even inviting him in to take over, to wash away your sin, to change your life, that you might begin to follow him from that day forward. Hey, there was a point in time, years back now, that I put this ring on my finger as an outward sign of my, of my commitment to my wife, Susie. Nobody can rightly say, I've always been a Christian Titus 3, verse 3 does, takes that off the table. We can't ever say, I've always been a Christian. There has to be a point in time where we know, because we were there, where we remember saying, Lord Jesus, would you come and even save me? Hey, if you've never done that, there's really good news. God loves you more than you know. And he's already paid the cost for your sin. And he stands ready with a desire, with a heart, to wipe your slate clean. And to give you a brand new life. But you got to come to him on his terms. Those terms 
laying down my sin, the Bible calls that repentance, and placing your faith, your trust, and even surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Perhaps for you this morning as a believer, you've understood the beauty of what God has done for you. He could have left you in Titus 3.3. But verse 4, he came because he loves you. And for you, believer, he's changed so much in your life. And maybe for you, it's the daily grind that has caused you to forget exactly who you belong to and what he paid to make you who you are. Maybe you've forgotten that there is a need, a mandate, marching orders to take the gospel to the world, starting in our own backyards, extending to all points on the globe. It includes that person you work with that drives you nuts. They don't have a relationship with God. They're going to act like Titus 3, verse 3. Maybe God puts you next to them in your cubicle because he wants you to be their missionary. But for some of you this morning, perhaps it's not being grateful for what you have as a Christian. It's an acknowledgement that you don't have a relationship with God. You're a good person, one of the best, and you do a lot of good things. But you know in your heart, you don't need me to say it, you already know that you've never come to the place of surrender and acceptance of the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And today God calls you. You know in your heart that today is the day to place your faith in Jesus. If that's your desire today, you can express that in a little prayer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. The sin of my life bears witness that I don't have a relationship with you. And today I acknowledge my sin. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me, to wipe my heart clean, to give me a new life, and that you would save me from this day forward. Lord Jesus, give me the courage to follow you every day of my life. And when I stumble, may I fall on your grace that picks me up and sends me forward as your light in this world. Thank you today, Jesus, for saving me, for forgiving me, and for keeping me, for becoming my Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. God, I thank you today for those perhaps for the first time prayed a prayer like that. Lord, we know there's nothing magical about the words. It's the position of our heart. And for some today, as in our first service, for the very first time, they chose to give their lives to Jesus. And so God, help them to remember that you're never going to let them go. But God, help them to also understand that your desire is for a deep relationship from this day forward as they walk in your grace. Lord, thank you for what you've done through your word for us. And thank you for the response of those that have responded today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.